The World According to Wikipedia is a podcast that pops the hood of Wikipedia and invites you to take a look inside. Each episode, we will talk to someone from the Wikimedia community on topics like why are only 18% of biographies about women? Can editing Wikipedia be a protest or activism? And what is it like for the communities working on the 200 plus Wikipedias that are not in English? Subscribe on your podcatcher of choice and follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello, I'm Paul Webster. How are you doing out there? I mentioned last week about the Love Hate event and forum. And now we have a few more details for you. Yeah, it's um, it's an FNI forum event. Basically, it's a kind of, you know, we use the, the term membership, but everybody is kind of, anybody who kind of interacts with us or more specifically has kind of attended our events or whatever as, you know, we're all kind of working collectively as a community. So it's very much open to everybody to kind of come along. So don't feel as if you, you can't attend based on, on, on any of the information you're reading. Everybody's welcome. Um, it's, yeah, it's very exciting. Um, we do this either in person or online um you know kind of once or twice a year and this is the i suppose the last kind of big online iteration of what would be an in-person networking event um and we and jesus we've some great stuff on the night that's we, brilliant uh, we have um a retrospective chat with uh some of the cast of love hate mary murray um wonderful uh, wonderful actor um peter Coonan will be along who plays fran if you have any bones to pick with him um We'll also have uh, Lynn Rafferty and Jimmy Smallhorn. Uh, anyone who was a fan of the last chat that we had with Jimmy online, he'll be there as well talking about um, making one of the most impressive cameos in Irish TV <laughs> um, ever. Um, also, we'll have roundtables on the night with the uh, Virgin Media Dublin International Film Festival who will be uh, having hosting a Discovery Roundtable um, checking in with some of the people they've um, they've um, highlighted and worked with over the last year or so. Uh, we will have a very awesome chat with Irish Actors' Equity to highlight representation in film and TV for actors. Just knowing what, knowing your rights, knowing uh, what's available out there to you, you know what kind of redress you have when things don't go well, and they'll you know there'll be a panel of um, um, experienced and respected professional people speaking about that, of which you can ask questions as well as we go during that. And we will also be joined by the Screen Composers Guild of Ireland over uh, on the tenth. Uh, which is coming up now in a few days. Um, just talking about composition in Ireland and the importance of um, of music to Irish film and TV. Yeah, it sounds sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> hey, it sounds great. Where, where do I sign up? Um, so yeah, if you go to the website, you can you can um, if you're a member already of our mentorship scheme. Um, that's available to you there. You'll know about it already. Um, equally, just in terms of what we do, you know, we're, you know, um, the majority of any funds that we that we make from these things go back into the pot to help us organise future events, book venues, all of that type of stuff. Um, so if you'd like to support us, if you'd like to sign up for the Members Forum event, the FNI Forum, uh, just head on, head on over to wearefni.com and there's more info there about how you can sign up for that hop-in event. Um, who have we got today? Paulito. Uh, today we have Mick Mahan. Uh, I got a chance to sit down with him for a one-on-one, tete-a-tete, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, last week. Um, and uh, yeah, brilliant chat. Uh, he is the editor for so many fantastic documentaries that we've had in a few... Uh, last few years going back a little bit you've got Idolores Citizen Lane and uh, he's got two new ones that are actually playing at the IFA IFI Docfest at the end of the month um, it's like my Super Bowl every year I, I <laughs> go and I nerd out at the IFI and I get as many tickets as I can um, always enjoy going to the shorts there um, and yeah, it looks really good uh, so far. So you've got Breaking Out, um, which we actually got to see last year, and we did an interview with Michael Mark McCormick, the um, 
uh, director of that, and it's amazing. Um, we didn't put that podcast out that time, but we will put it out closer to the release because uh, their release schedule got all changed around with COVID. A bloody pandemic. Yeah, but it's a it's an amazing doc. Um, great music doc and then also is uh, Love Yourself and that is at the IFI as well uh, that is also screening so yeah they're just announcing the schedule just yeah as it, as it comes out uh, so yeah definitely um, great to chat to Mick about those we had a chat about those films and just being an editor working today and kind of his philosophy on documentaries also Got to hear a bit more on the Gaza story. McMahon actually went out to Gaza and was editing there while they were shooting. Uh, it was the only way they could actually do it. So that was very interesting to hear his his perspective on how that all came about. And uh, yeah, it's 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 an uh, it's amazing film. Um, and you can go back and listen to the Gary Keane episode, who was the co-director on that. So yeah, let's go to McMahon. for having us into the studio today. So you you made the move down to Cork, is that right? That's right, East Cork. I live in Yall, just on the Cork-Waterford border. Moved down there about three years ago and uh, with a view to kind of setting up remotely and, and working a bit more from home, not realising that it would become the normal, um, un- unfortunately. But in a way, I was kind of set up to work remotely in advance of the pandemic, which meant, you know, I've, I've been able to continue working pretty much throughout and how does that work in terms of working with directors? Were you doing it? Were you were you kind of planning to do a lot of that kind of remotely, or did they come, or how does that work? Well, a bit of both, to be honest. I mean, some of the people who I work with will be people I know quite well at this stage. So, um, directors like Gary Keane, Mara Sweeney, they're, they're, they're friends going back many years. So it was great to have them down to work as well. Like so, you know, they'd, they'd come to the house and we'd work, or and they they could stay, you know. Um, I've done quite a bit of work remotely in advance of the pandemic. I, I did one series where I didn't actually meet the director at all. Right. And it was all just done with sort of uploads and receiving notes through Frame.io, um, sort of software for note note giving and receiving, you know. Um, through the pandemic, um, there's been a lot of Zoom, but very little live editing right. remotely, which I'm kind of happy about. I, I kind of, speaking to some of my colleagues, particularly guys who are in the TV drama world, Kind of, if you offer up something to people, they'll they'll tend to to take it. Right. So, which can lead to sort of like eight to ten hours of Zoom yeah. every day, yeah. and it's mind melting. Well, it's just a very different dynamic to being in the room with mm-hmm. an individual. Yeah. Because often in a, in a cutting room with a director, you know, the director will plug in and out of what you're doing as they as they need to or want to, yeah. and be doing other stuff in the background. You know. Whereas yeah. if it's just a face on a on a screen all day, you just it's just you know, Big Brother is watching you kind of yeah. feeling. Yeah. I, I, just, I know some editors just found it just a little stressful and maybe just a little bit unnecessary. Because yeah. most, editors, most editors I know like to be kind of left to it um, until, you know, like, let me work away and then we'll have a, look, a review and talk through whatever you're working on. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of, you know, 24-7, yeah. um, you know, FaceTime interaction is kind yeah. of a bit off-putting, yeah. you know. But you're... you're Enjoying it down there, you, you made the right made the right move getting out of the yeah, city. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was kind of a lifestyle decision, to be honest with you, and yeah. it was also an affordability yeah. issue around getting a home. You yeah. know, yeah. So um, so by the sea, East Cork. It's uh, you know, I, I'm sorry we didn't do it years ago. To really? be honest with you, yeah, yeah. No, it's been a great move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really good. Uh, are you a dub originally yourself? I am um, from South County Dublin, Shankill. Um, that's my kind of my old stomping ground, yeah. Dunleary area, yeah. you know. So you want to be somewhere uh, near the sea. Somewhere near the sea, yeah, feels natural, you know. Yeah. Uh, but f- yeah, from Dublin and um, never thought I'd live anywhere in Ireland outside of Dublin. Mm. So, um, but it's, you know, 
no regrets on that front at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Um, I was lucky enough to get to see one of your more recent projects, uh, the Damien Dempsey documentary um in Galway it was fantastic were, were you at the I was yeah. yeah it was it was lovely it was it was just nice to be at uh, an event of any kind you know yeah. and I think they did a great job setting up the outdoor um you know venue and just the, the vibe really well, was great but then again you know it was a beautiful summer's night yeah. you know uh, yeah. so on a you know it can be unpredictable down west yeah I was at the so. shorts the next day and uh Started off really nice, and then in the middle, uh, a thunderstorm came in. But that's no, Galway. Yeah, it could be, it could be dreary enough. <laughs> yeah. But no, there was a beautiful atmosphere in Galway actually. Even yeah. though it was kind of operating at twenty miles an hour as opposed to a hundred miles mm. an hour, with with everything shutting down, so it, it wasn't like the party that it would have been. Yeah. In with the rowing club and all that kind of stuff. But um, it was just lovely to be, you know, sharing the experience of watching a film at, at a premiere. Yeah. With, with people and yeah. the nature of that film in particular I kind of feel it feels like the right film at the right time mm. given that it's about that sort of shared communal experience of of you know music yeah um you know as a as a healing tool or as a bonding tool yeah. for for a group of people so yeah. I have a feeling it could just land with people mm. you know it certainly get me watching it it get me a real yearning to be back in a packed venue watching live music again you know yeah yeah um yeah for anyone won't have gotten to see it, but there there is an incredible uh, trailer out there at the moment and really kind of captures the film. But essentially it's kind of part concert film, part, um, I guess, a b mental health journey. Yeah, it's kind of social doc in a way. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was funny because I knew that the, everything was going to be framed around these these shows that Damien does at Christmas. And they, um, Ross Colleen, the director had wanted to kind of, you know, use the, the framework of these concerts to dip in and, in and out of the lives of some of the fans who would, uh, focusing on issues around addiction, grief, mental health. Um, and for us, it was just about getting that balance that, you know, you could sort of dip in and out of the concert without feeling, oh my God, here we are, we have to go into, into the dock part. And, you know, so for fans, it's just to, to make it feel kind of seamless, I guess, was, was the trick. Yeah. And to know um, how to get that balance right. And I think it's about 50-50 actually on, on screen between the live music um, ingredient and the doc. Right, yeah. yeah. More or less, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, about yeah. half and half. Yeah. And w uh, d did it change much in the edit of what it was meant to be or... It it did in some way. Well, for a start, there was another character. There was a fourth character and for, for various reasons... Um, they decided not to continue with the project. So, right. and we had already a cut at that point. So, okay. um, so we had to kind of recalibrate everything as a result of that. Yeah. And in a way, the film's better for it. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of much more focused in on the three individuals who yeah. are in it. And as a result, we actually pushed Demo himself more into the narrative because mm. uh, he he wasn't really as uh, as present in that first cut. Yeah. Um, from from my memory of it anyway like so we, we there was a lot more filming and recording yeah. done with Damien yeah. away from the music right um, which was a, a nice addition I felt yeah yet if if you're going in thinking you're going to get the story of Damien Dempsey kind of biopic style no it's not, it's not that well fun. that was never the intention and, yeah. and, and in fact um, I think Ross intended to have a lot less Right. of it yeah. um, I felt that as a viewer I'd be hungry for a little bit more yeah. than we had in the initial first cut yeah. but we didn't want to go into full biopic yeah. doc uh, territory it's not, yeah. it, it's not that and, and Damien himself wouldn't have been comfortable with that no. he, didn't, he didn't see it as being a film about yeah. him yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's not you know and just, yeah. so so yeah, yeah. So that, that, that was actually one of my pandemic edits right. where we did a lot of note giving and taking and sharing of cuts yeah um but then concentrated time at key points where i'd come to dublin and we just get in the room for a week or two okay so and it was a quick edit like i think we did about 12 weeks yeah on it you know which was which was you know we were pretty quick really yeah yeah um, cuz it's run 90 minutes it's a bit shy of 90 i think yeah. i think it's you know but it's you know i think you know, the length of a football match is probably a good length for a doc. Like, uh, yeah. I don't have, you know, it's not a rule as such, but, I, you know, for a for a feature doc, I think 90 is a good target. 
Um, if you start getting towards the two hours, I just kind of feel it maybe outstaying your welcome a wee bit, you know. It gets fatty, yeah. I it always get it's a it's a warning sign. If, it, it more so in docs and dramas, yeah, I find. Yeah. I mean, I can more, I, yeah, definitely. I, I could say yeah. with a three hour yeah. movie, yeah, a, a, a narrative film, yeah, a lot more than. But again, it depends on the film, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It really has to, you know. There has to be something special. Like I think the Maradona one might have been too. You know, some of those ones, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, just a little haircut would have been nice, you know? Yeah, yeah. But um, I guess when you have, uh, I mean, if Asif Kapadia is making the film, yeah. like, and he's he's got like a wealth of uh, yeah. resources yeah. and archive yeah. to work with. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's so much in the crafting a film like that. But yeah, um, yeah. they'd yeah. be an exception for me. Like, if you have that kind of wealth of archive, you can go. But yeah, I, I even 80 minutes is a good. Yeah, um, I, I, if you go into extra time of a football match, yeah. I think that's kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, so 90 is kind of would yeah. be a, yeah, yeah. a a good target. Yeah. So 90 yeah. or under, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, you've done a lot of music videos, or music, sorry, documentaries at this uh, stage. Um, have I now? Have I? I've done, well, the last few have been music yeah. uh, content. It kind of happened by accident, to be honest yeah. with you. Um yeah, I'm, I'm working on a music film at the moment, um, and then there was Damien, and then Breaking Out, which was about Fergus O'Farrell. Yeah. Um, but we that's that's been finished a while now. I mean, it's yeah. a, it was two years since Galway yeah. this summer, like so, and it's having a release coming up, hopefully before Christmas as yeah. well. Yeah, I actually interviewed so. Michael McCormick last summer, oh, um, yeah. and yeah. when they were getting ready to release, and then so I think. It'd be weird to put that podcast out now, so I think we might just try to do it again. But I love the film. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. No, but it was for Michael. It was just a, it was the classic labor of love, you know. Um, very difficult for a director to come in and make a film about a, a close friend who has passed away, and and not be overwhelmed by the emotional yeah. weight of that, yeah. and the expectation to a certain extent of friends, family, and fans, you know. Mm. It was a funny one from my point of view as well, because as an editor, sometimes, you, you, particularly in doc, you're, you're dealing with real people. Um, and sometimes you have that odd thing where you have to present the doc to the person it's about. Like, so I've had that with Michal Hertig, I've had that with John Sheehan from the Dubliners. And so it was a very strange moment when you sit in a room with them and watch it. Yeah. This was different in that Ferg was also a friend of mine. Oh, really? And okay. and yeah. unbeknownst to Michael, actually. Yeah. Um, when I came out of the IADT, well, it was the Dunleary School of Art and Design, as it was at the time, yeah. we started off um, doing music videos. And I actually, that was probably one of my first sort of gigs after college was cutting Interference's first music video. Oh, wow. And then with Gary Keane. That, that one was directed by Mara Sweeney, and the second one was Gary Keane directed, and I also cut that. So... We became friends with Ferg. We were kind of knocking around that music scene in, in Dublin. This yeah. is kind of early to mid-90s. Yeah. And we were playing music ourselves. So we became close friends in that period. You know, we, we lost touch with each other subsequently, but like, you know, mm. 10 years later. But there was a period of time where we would have been in regular contact with Ferg and a lot of those guys within that interference yeah. family, yeah. as they call themselves, you know. Right. Yeah. So... You know, I couldn't really say no to that. I mean, I was kind of going, wow, but, you know, I've never edited a film about somebody I knew personally. Right. Um, so that was interesting, but and, and also quite upsetting in some other ways because I hadn't seen Ferg in, in the sort of the, you know, without giving too much away about the film and in, in the couple of years before he died. Yeah. I, you know, so to see the impact of his illness on him yeah. physically and emotionally was, was, was hard. It was a hard watch, you know, right. yeah. in, in terms of the rushes. Yeah. And then how to handle that. Yeah. You know, within, within the framework of the film, you know. Yeah. And because in the film, you know, you get, you there's, I couldn't actually get over the wealth of um, archive. Mm -hmm. There's so much there. I mean, yeah. was that, was, is that part of your job? Like kind of finding that and seeing what works? Not, not so much finding it, but mm -hmm. as maybe asking for it yeah. or asking for it to be found right. if you know what I yeah, mean yeah, yeah. like I knew that there was a lot of stuff out there but in, in fairness to Michael I mean he he had actually been filming off and on over a 10 year period so a lot of the archive was really his you know right but yeah. I, I know because Michael had a full time job of his own and he was trying to get down to Ferg whenever he could to film yeah. and it wasn't like he could set things up or that he just kind of show up and what, yeah. whatever would happen yeah. now the, the, the thing that they knew was definitely happening was 
having Glenn Hansard and the Frames coming down to be the band for his this album, album that he was recording. Yeah, yeah. So that was the first rushes I I, I actually saw yeah. um, once I agreed to do it, or once Michael asked me to do it rather. Yeah. And um, immediately watching that, I I kind of suggested, well, this you should frame the whole film around these recording sessions because yeah. it, 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 it didn't feel that you could use it as an ending because yeah. you would have to sacrifice so much of it. Yeah. Um, but by making that one timeline, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So the, the, the timeline is the making of this album and then to weave in and out of his life story. Yeah. Um, with, with that as the kind of the spine right. was kind of one of the first editorial suggestions or decisions that we made was, was to try and do it that way. And yeah. we never really wavered from that. Yeah. Um, it's about a year since I saw it, uh, but the the overwhelming kind of feeling feeling that I think of when I get from it, you know, and it it's a really heartbreaking story, and and you know I can't imagine for for someone who actually knew, but uh, I just think of kind of joyousness mm-hmm. when I think about it, mm-hmm. and how was that like, you know, was that something, was that just there, or did it was that? Well, I tell you, it was there in spades and partly because of just the honesty of the director and the subject's relationship, right, you know, right. and there's no substitute for time spent with yeah. a with a with a person to get footage that you just couldn't get otherwise, you know, yeah. so you couldn't have sort of parachuted a director into that situation yeah. and got the intimacy yeah. on camera, you know, Ferg with his wife like um you know some of those kind of more tender quieter moments michael's just invisible yeah. an, an invisible observer and he, he, i think you really need to be um you know you need to know the person spend time with them yeah. and like over 10 years you know off and on like that 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 relationship was really built you know yeah yeah um going back to the start how did you find your way into editing well editing for me how did I find my way? Well, I, I started off in the film course in the Dunleary College of Art and Design. And really, I started there not knowing much about anything to do with film or TV. Um, I didn't have a great sort of, you know, I wasn't really a film buff as such um, in my childhood. I was more into sport and had been a competitive swimmer for years. So that was that was to the exclusion of everything else, really. So I wasn't really brought to the to the to the movies by my family or anything like so I, I didn't have a, a huge film education I kind of I kind of came across films um through sort of BBC two and channel four right. in the sort of mid eight, mid 80s late 80s yeah. discovering people like Finn Benders or you yeah, know Christoph yeah. Kozlowski's Decalogue was huge for me right. uh, as realizing there was something else yeah. uh, beyond like evil can evil films and right, James yeah, Bond films yeah. which, which we would have seen as kids you yeah. know but if you do those so, after midnight those kind of festivals yeah, yeah. That they put on, yeah. it was kind of a, a, Alex Cox used to do um was it movie drum movie drama I think it was yeah it was a yeah. series where they you know you'd see you know kind of art house films which you just wouldn't see anywhere else and certainly not in Ireland yeah. this is before the lighthouse yeah. the first incarnation of the lighthouse cinema was even there like yeah. so yeah. so it was, it, was, it was a sort of a window into another world and discovering Bergman and Fellini and Kurosawa and all of that stuff like so then I was just kind of hook line and sinker from there right. yeah. um, and as far as editing goes I mean the course we did we, we were kind of exposed to everything and mm-hmm. um, we were you know encouraged to try everything and my speciality in college was actually camera and lighting not editing because editing wasn't really a, a, something you could specialize in but we were encouraged to edit our own work right um so by the time we graduated um i had done enough editing to realize that there was a bit of magic here you know mm-hmm. and i had a wonderful teacher a woman called Anna O'Leary who was just this multi-talented individual who was so you know encouraging to all of us but watching her, and this is on the Steambacks now, this is, you know, sort of working on print, just watching her manipulate the film physically was quite thrilling. Like, it was like some sort of alchemy going on here, you know, and, and I suddenly realised that, you know, the combination of images and sound was something quite magical and very expressive. And it's almost like a very pure form of expression within film. Because, you know, if you hand the same rushes to two different editors, you'll you'll have a different result. Yeah. So, yeah. um so I, I really didn't get find my feet in editing for a while. I mean, part of the problem, I think, with, with the course we did was we all came out expecting to be direct directors, like straight away. Yeah. Like, like yeah. why haven't I been called? Like, to, yeah, yeah. You know, so there was, a, there was a kind of a year of kind of sitting around wondering why the phone isn't ringing rather than just 
you know, getting your hands dirty and going out and making corporates or making music videos or whatever it is you need to do to, to learn your craft. So, you know, I finally got my break through Shea Mary Doyle, who was a, is a, a kind of legendary editor, you know, who, yeah. who, who brought me in as a kind of trainee. And through him, I met Ema Reynolds and I subsequently was an assistant to her. Okay. And gradually kind of worked my way into um, assisting on feature films in the 90s when it was a, it was a real sort of, you know, um, glut of, of, you know, production in Ireland in the mid-90s. So ended up meeting some wonderful directors, uh, director of With Nail and I, or editor, sorry, the editor of With Nail and I, mm -hmm. um, Alan Strahan, lovely man, um, really sort of, you know, inspiring to speak to a guy like that. Yeah. And then there was a man called John Gregory who had been Mike Lee's editor for many years. And yeah. he was here to edit a film with Mike Newell called An Awfully Big Adventure. Um, and I was a trainee on that. So, you know, spending time in the company of these these great editors was just, just mm. wonderful because they, they were all very generous with their time, you know, yeah. and very encouraging. You know? And working with film? Working with film, yeah. yeah. Working on prints at that stage. Um, I was probably one of the last generation of people to train yeah. on film. Yeah. Um, I, I never did video editing. I never really w was taken with the idea of it at all. Right. So... Um, I would have trained on print, um, but not long after I graduated and with the skills that I had, yeah. nonlinear came in, which kind of threw us to a certain extent because we kind of were like, OK, our, our, the skills are obsolete now to a certain extent, mm -hmm. even though they weren't really because the decision making processes and the organisational stuff still has to be, you know, implemented, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, I kind of I took a few years after between sort of 97 and 2000. I, I just kind of I didn't really get anywhere particularly, you know, with with, with editing, you know, and it wasn't until um, I was in my early 30s that I started to get work that I would have considered, you know, substantial work, you know, but it was mostly doing sort of comedy shows, light entertainment shows um, and documentary wasn't really something I ever really targeted to do. Mm. Um, to be honest, when I was in college, it, documentary was seen as a, a sort of a lesser form of filmmaking, you know. And a TV. And TV uh, yeah. again, a notch yeah. below. Right. Which, yeah. of course, is, you know, I mean, the freedom working in documentaries gives you as an editor is, is, is you know, can't be replicated yeah. in drama, really. Yeah. But it took me a while to kind of realize that myself. Right. And I kind of felt, well, documentaries is this notch below where you want to be, you know. Um, but then my good friend Morris Sweeney offered me an opportunity to cut um, a, a real art, not real art, sorry, Arts Lives uh, documentary about Flann O'Brien. Okay. Um, and I kind of, for me, that was a, a turning point in that I was given a lot of freedom creatively, a lot of trust from Morris because, you know, I didn't have the, the air miles to justify getting this job, really. Right. So he kind of took, took a chance on me. Um, as did Liam McGrath, another director I was working with, and I cut some observational documentaries for him. So that kind of gave me some confidence, I think, that I can actually do this job mm. and maybe I'm not bad at it, you know? Yeah. So since then, I've kind of, you know, it, it, it's kind of kind of grew from that, I suppose, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's because it is, you know, you were, that's really your specialty would be documentary. Right? Yeah, it is. And like I said, it's, it's, it's kind of accidental, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't enough drama being made in this yeah. country to, to employ every editor. And in a way, you can be pigeonholed into being one thing or the other. Um, and I just became the guy who did a certain type of doc. Yeah. Um, now, I, I have cut drama and I do cut drama from time to time. And, you know, I do lo always look forward to doing it. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's, you know, it's all just about storytelling at the end of the day, whether it's a documentary or a drama. And yeah. as an editor, you're, you're a storyteller, really, yeah. or an interpreter to a certain extent of a, of a director's vision for a film. Yeah. Um, but there's a freedom in documentary where you can really, really have an impact or an influence on, on, the, on the shaping of the film. Yeah. And particularly, you know, certain types of films where you don't necessarily know or, or the filmmakers don't necessarily know Mm. what it is you're going to get, you yeah. know. Yeah, so yeah. sometimes you could be presented with a situation where you've got hundreds of hours of, of rushes. Yeah. Um, the film Gaza is a perfect point in case with this and you, you, you need to kind of find the film right. in the rushes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's something I, I'd love to talk more about getting your perspective. So a few weeks ago we had Gary Keane on the show talk right. about it and uh, he, he's mentioned that you were out there, which is 
unusual. Like you kind of would. I just assumed that they would have brought the the rushes back, but because it's such an extraordinary type of film, uh, you actually had to go out there. So maybe tell us about that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was quite a journey, all right. Um, at the decision for me to go out was made on the basis that they knew Gary and Andrew, the directors, that this was going to be their last chance to film in Gaza, yeah. that they were not going to get permission to go in again. Um, up to that point, there had been two blocks of filming that had happened. Andrew McConnell, um, who was a wonderful sort of conflict zone photographer, had gone in to film uh, the surfers. Gary probably told you about this. Yeah. And, and, and immediately this war kicked off. So he ended up spending every single day of that war. So he had like over 100 hours of war footage which was what I saw first. And we went, and that was the basis on which we kind of figured that we could maybe, you know, tell a human story with this as a backdrop. So that was the first block of, of filming. The second one, Gary went with Andrew and they pinpointed characters and tried to get more of the character beats and who will be the characters in the film as opposed to the kind of reportage style um, filming that Andrew had done prior to that. So we had done, you know, we cut a promo for funding I was quite familiar with the the characters that they had filmed with, but it was there was this kind of anxiety around not seeing the rushes until they were back home, yeah. because it would be too late to really do anything about it. Right. So we felt well, it, it, getting the rushes out of Gaza was impossible, but it was easier to get me in. Right. And that was all very cloak and dagger as well. Yeah. Um. But once we were in, we were able to kind of you know, almost like to, you you would on a drama. Um. Process rushes overnight. I had a team of assistants who were, uh, you know, making the transcodes for the rushes, locals, but also local, yeah, locals, yeah, 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 all locals, um, and and they were also the translators. So I would be given a transcript of the translated rushes, right, and make selections based on that, on paper. Yeah. Then. Uh, my team would subtitle the selected bits and then I would be ready to cut from there. Okay. So, but what it meant was that we could sit down every evening because there's nothing to do in Gaza. <laughs> you know, right. there's, there's no going to the pub, you know. Yeah. So we were there for five weeks, right. four or five weeks. Yeah. So in the evenings, we would just sit and watch um, everything that had been filmed the previous day, you know, as you would do in a drama. So in a way, it helped us kind of almost direct the film from the edit. We, we could see in front of us what was working, what wasn't, what we wanted less of, more of. So um, there was a lot of discussion about the direction the film was taking based upon what we were seeing every day. Right. Yeah. And what, I mean, it's kind of a scary place to be. Like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't. It was a yeah. funny kind of thing. I mean, getting in was bizarre. Yeah. Um, we basically, you know, had to lie through our teeth to get the press pass. We went in as journalists. Right. Um, and we were making a radio documentary about uh, artists in, in Palestine. That was the cover story. Okay. And a, a notable broadcaster in Ireland validated our cover story. Right. So that's how we got in. Right. Once we were in, we were kind of... It, was, it wasn't so much dangerous. I mean, there was, there, was, there was always a whiff of sulfur in the air. You know, you always mm. get the, got the sense that things could kick off. And they did. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But... Yeah. I mean, the first thing we had to do was be interviewed by Hamas individually. And they were basically trying to catch us out on little untruths in our story. So we were all taken in individually and kind of grilled by Hamas officials, which was kind of interesting. But within a week of setting up, we basically had two apartments in Gaza City. Um, Gary and Andrew were on one side and myself and Bob Brennan, the Sandman, were on the other side. We are literally across the corridor from each other. So I set up my cutting room. Um... And within a week of being there, Andrew had been kind of advised not to film in a certain area. Mm. But Andrew being a kind of a gung-ho type of guy and, and because he was used to being a kind of a lone wolf photographer, he, he, he couldn't be told. Like, so he had to go. And right. he did. But he was straight away pulled by Hamas, who confiscated the cameras, confiscated the cards. There was a lot of anxiety around. They were due to come to the edit room. And we were basically, you know, suspected of being spies. Right. which was kind of, you know, a little bit spicy. Right. And resulted in us being put under house arrest for uh, five days. So we actually thought the game was up at that point, that the film, that was, that was going to be it, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, 
they returned all the equipment. They were they didn't confiscate yeah. rushes. Yeah. But they um, appointed a fixer, a Hamas guy, to monitor everything. Okay. And our our fixers in Gaza managed to make that go away. Right. In whatever way they managed to do it, they did. So, so the, you know, there was a suggestion that they'd have a Hamas person with them every day while out shooting, and that just wasn't going to work. Yeah. So, but aside from that, I mean, the, the biggest event that happened while we were there was the, the Trump administration moving the embassy, uh, the American embassy to Jerusalem. And this was coinciding with what they called the Nakba, which is the anniversary of the, the land grab. You know, and where the Palestinians say we will we will return to our lands. So this is why at the border you have all these people, you know, throwing stones, burning tires. It's it's protest, but it's you know it's a David and Goliath situation where you have you know mostly men, mostly young men throwing stones at people with you know uh, sniper rifles, yeah, and tear gas. You know, so it's not it's not a fair fight in any way. So it really really kicked off while we were there but we kind of knew it would which is why we were there at that time so when you see Gaza all the footage you see at the border happened while we were there on the third visit right yeah Mm -hmm. Um, it's a stunning piece of work Uh, I watched this for the second time when I was interviewing Gary Mm -hmm. and um, yeah having heard you know the stories of what you all had to kind of go through and you know and you I know you would all say it's nothing compared to what the Gazans have to go through absolutely we could leave you know yeah <laughs> so. yeah but yeah. Um, you know it's very inspiring for you know any any time I complain about making a film here I, <laughs> I think of you guys out there trying to deal with four hours of power and that kind well of the thing. electricity was a whole other thing but again it was you know there were so many obstacles to overcome mm. but you could never really dwell on that because you know we had the freedom to leave yeah. and actually it was a, it was an utterly heartbreaking day the day we left um, because it was we were being driven to the border by our our our, our crew like and we, you know we became quite close with these people over yeah. the course we were there you know and um, and then suddenly we were kind of intercepted by Hamas and David basically said you need to now get into this vehicle so there was no goodbye as such. It was, right. it, you know, we thought we were, you know, get a chance to properly say goodbye to these guys. And um, um, we were all very, very quiet on that last leg of the journey because right. it just, you know, it kind of hit, hit us that we may never see these guys again. Yeah. And we haven't yet, you know. Yeah. Now, I know Andrew's been back to present a film in Gaza, which was a huge big deal mm. to be able to do that. Um And we did try to get Fadi, who was our fixer, our, our main kind of production manager really on the ground there yeah. out to, to come to the premiere in Sundance and uh, we couldn't manage that so you know it's it's a tough one it's yeah a, it's a difficult situation you know yeah yeah must really I must be one that really sticks with you that one yeah yeah absolutely unforgettable but I mean I mean I'd go back tomorrow like if I could yeah. like honestly and and I'm sure Gary told you you know we're in constant contact yeah. With the people we work with there, I mean, it's almost daily. In Gary's case, it is daily. Yeah. Um. But like, we're we're in touch constantly. You know, yeah. they take great pride in the film. You know, to, mm. to kind of feel that. You know, they were given a voice. Yeah. That is rarely given to them. You know, so, you know, on a personal level, I take a great amount of pride in that. Yeah. And that, and that it means so much to them. Yeah. You know. Was it screened there? Yeah. It was. Yeah. 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 We, we we did some fundraising here to enable this called the film festival called the Red Carpet Film Festival where they literally literally run a red carpet through the ruins of Gaza wow. and have this outdoor screening. It's the most surreal context for a film screening. Amazing. But they managed to have it, yeah. If you Google it, you'll see the pictures. It's, it's quite an image to see this red carpet snaking through the, the rubble right. of, uh, of Gaza. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah well, well done on that. That's, yeah, it, it, as I said, it's a real inspiration, that, that film. And, Cheers, man. Uh, what, you, what you all put into it. Um, the uh, so you're we were saying about kind of music documentaries mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. uh, but they're all very different, like, yeah, very different. I mean, and at, at the heart of all of them is a human story, which is you know far more interesting than a music doc. I yeah. mean, it, if you look at what, like, say, what, what, what you would see on BBC Four on a Saturday night, it, it, it you get these kind of profile 
films, which yeah. are very, you know, sort of just go through the career and life of an artist. Yeah. That in itself isn't all that interesting, really. Yeah. And, you know, I'm working on a film about a well-known Irish artist at the moment, which I can't, I can't really get too much into that today. Yeah. But... Um, so I almost... Ask the question and that's how I yeah, no, that. Look, it, 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 yeah. it, it, it'll, it'll all come out eventually. But look, yeah, it's yeah. it, it, it's a pretty well-known Irish uh, female artist um, that we're that I'm working on a film about at the moment. But again, it's it's trying to find a, a narrative that is you know beyond the straightforward biopic mm. that thematically you're exploring areas that have nothing to do with. The music itself, you know, yeah. or that the music is just a is just a conduit into, yeah. um, you know, you're using it as a narrative device. Yeah. Um, but I like, I mean, I don't seek out music based yeah. projects. It just yeah. kind of happened. Yeah. I mean, I've I've done a lot of sports stuff on TV. I've done a lot of arts yeah. based um, yeah. content as well, which I really enjoy. Yeah. But uh, do you like to try like if like when offers are coming in? kind of what's your process in terms of like do you do you really have to have a connection or you know well it's a gut instinct really yeah. you know mm. and, and and that applies to everything i do as an editor it's it's kind of trying to feel it yeah you know the gut instinct so yeah. you know if, if people approach me with a project i'll i'll just look at it on its merits and it's and often you know on the one hand it's the project itself but then it's the people as yeah. well that, that you're going to work with because editing is intensive um yeah. and you know, okay, we may have 12 weeks on one job, but another one could be 26 weeks or, you know, so you're kind of looking at the amount of time you're going to spend. Do you feel that you have a rapport with a director yeah. that you can actually help them realize the film they want to make? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of when I get a, a feeling of being brought in as a collaborator is when I really kind of, that's the position I like to be in. That's the way I like to work rather than just being a, uh, a button presser yeah. you know or somebody yeah, yeah. that's just like do it this way but yeah. I like when I'm working on documentaries to offer up um, ideas to a director that they may not have thought of themselves yeah. while staying within the framework of what it is they want to do you know yeah. so yeah. it can be nice to just kind of you know suggest things that maybe they mightn't have considered and often it can be a case of just actually doing it cutting cutting a scene a certain way and showing it and go, and 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 that can give you know that can be a real buzz for a director as well. Yeah. They suddenly, oh, right, didn't, didn't think of that. Like, yeah. oh, great, let's keep that. And and that it becomes a dialogue and a collaboration. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of the documentary. Wouldn't that would be much more unusual in drama? Well, I guess in drama, there's a lot more at stake mm. to, a, to a degree. Mm. And particularly with TV drama, yeah. if you're coming in to the middle season of an established show, you, you know, it's it's it, the train's already moving. You know, yeah. you just don't want to derail it. Yeah. So it, it's harder, I'd say, to colour around around the edges if you're working on something like The Crown or yeah. Peaky Blinders, say, mm -hmm. just for instance, as, yeah. as as examples. Whereas with with low budget drama, um, particularly with say with first time directors, an editor would probably be afforded a, a, a lot more of a voice. Yeah. But you know. I guess with a drama, it does a script, you know, yeah. and that's the blueprint. Yeah. But, you know, so long as there is a, you know, an openness to kind of yeah. explore around the edges of that blueprint. Yeah. You know, but yeah. I think I think documentary is different in that there's less people involved for mm. the most part. Mm. Um, often it would be myself and a director and that's it for yeah. long, long periods. Yeah. Producers would come in and there would be viewings and obviously commissioning editors or any of the vested parties yeah. would come in and, and offer notes. Yeah. But by and large, you're just kind of dealing with one or two people. Yeah. And I, I kind of like that about it, yeah. about documentaries, it's you know. Almost, I almost think of like in documentary writer, director, it's almost, they're almost like co-writers. I don't know if you yeah, yeah, kind of, you know, that, and, yeah. and it does, you know, I've heard it being discussed through other editors that they kind of feel like that even the role of directing in a doc and editing is it's kind of one and the same sometimes, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I know a lot of um documentary editors who've gone on to become directors themselves. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and I've dabbled in directing also like so it's 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 just filmmaking really. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, yeah, and yeah, I, I I kind of see a, a, I spoke speaking with a, an editor, a friend of mine, Joe Beanie, who's worked with Werner Herzog over many, many years, and he kind of goes, "Well, editors are filmmakers. That's the you know, yeah. 
that's the way he would put it out there, you know, because yeah. you are literally making the film in the room, you know. Yeah. And and also an observation of Joe's, which I quite liked, is that like, you know, you're one of the people in the process of making film, making a film that when you get to the end of your job, there is a film. It's yeah. it's there in front of you, you know. Yeah, There's yeah. not many other roles within production where when you finish your job, there's a film, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice to be part of that process because I actually love after the picture lock. I really love that that period of time. Really love being in the sound mix. I love being part of the whole sound design side of things. Right. Right through to the mix, to the grade, to the finishing touches, you know. Right. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, not often, I wouldn't be that involved in every yeah. job, but yeah. certainly the stuff I would do with Gary, with Gaza. I was in Montreal for two weeks just working on the on the music and with the, with the, with the composer, like and wow. figuring out all the cues, working on the sound design yeah. and, and kind of supervising all of that. Yeah. So I, I would see that as part of my role as well, you know. Okay, that that's quite unusual, I'd say. But not 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 really. No. Like I, I think, I'd, well, I think the editor should be there, and yeah. in, in in it certainly for the sound mix. Yeah. Because you know, you know as well as anybody what's what's in there, and yeah. often I I would actually rough mix as I go when I'm cutting. Yeah. So I kind of bring a lot of the sound ideas into play okay. as I'm cutting. Yeah. So because I like to be able to, you know, okay, you're going to bring in a team of sound editors yeah. to bring their bit of magic to it. But I like to be able to say, well, this is kind of what, yeah. what we're thinking of. Producers would love you, I'd say that. <laughs> well, I look at, you know, it's just whatever works for people, you yeah, know, yeah, but yeah. It, it's it's the sound picture dynamic that I, I get a great buzz out of yeah, that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and as the day you sit back in the mixing theatre and watch the film finished, with, with the with the mix, it's just always a great day, you know. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah no. As a director, I I like that kind of way of editing. That where you're not just going, oh yeah, that's someone else's, you know, you know, someone yeah, else's I, problem. <laughs> I, I, I kind of see as as an editor, you're kind of you're 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 kind of in charge of the post production, you know. Yeah, so you, okay. I I kind of feel often the budgets aren't there to allow you to be two weeks on a on a job, say. Yeah. On Gaza, um, because I have a relationship with the director. Carrie was kind of like, well, we just, we want you there for yeah. for all of it, like you know. Yeah. So absolutely, like if it's yeah. if you know, but often you know, if I finish on on one one project, and post production isn't happening immediately, yeah. I might be on another job. So it's not possible to to necessarily be there in person all the time. But I would always get sand mixes and rough mixes and give notes right till the end. Yeah. Even yeah. even if I'm working on something else at the time. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the most important thing for, like, say, directors when they're looking for an editor? What they what should they be looking for? Okay, well, um, I think it's an openness to explore all the possibilities and the rushes, right? And to be completely open-minded to all the possibilities. Yeah. Um, I think you need somebody who has a, a an absolute interest in the subject that you're making the film about, yeah. and that has, you know, that's prepared to challenge you as a director. Not in a confrontational sense, but in a challenging sense of making, you know, just just kind of maybe pushing the director in, into places that they wouldn't necessarily go. Mm. So um, I know some directors have hired me because they know that, you know, if I'm in, if I'm on board, I will always offer that, you know, um, that challenge, yeah. you know, yeah. to a director to really to really like sort of test drive your your material, your, yeah. your rushes and just to make sure you're getting the best out of them, you know. Yeah. Um, diplomacy is a is a big key in this as well. Like and knowing when when it's w w like when do you push and when is do you sort of step back? You know, yeah. as an editor, because not every battle is worth a fight. Yeah, and like I, I don't get into that kind of fight confrontation situation with with directors at all. It's more about you know them believing that you have the best interests of the film at heart yeah. and everything that you're yeah. suggesting, and it's nothing going to do with you. Yeah, yeah. In any in any way, shape, or form, yeah. at all, like you know, yeah. I don't, you, you you're just kind of there to kind of you know, to advise and to and to try and steer to a certain extent, mm -hmm. um, the the passage of the film or the narrative of the film. So in terms, I mean, look, every editor has their own set of skills, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I really believe that it, you know, you hire a different editor, you have a different film, yeah. So you know. There's a lot of moving parts in 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 that whole edit yeah. world, you know. Yeah. Um, if there's a an editor now today who's just just maybe realised that this is what they want to do, would you have any advice for someone starting out? I think I think now it's so much easier to for 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 somebody starting now because the editing software it's all there for you. You know, when I started out, I mean, 
you couldn't just shoot film and cut it on the steam back every day. Um, so I think th the advice I would have is just to cut anything you can whenever you can. Yeah. Because you you know you learn every time you you sit down to edit a scene you're going to learn something else and I'm still learning uh, all the time you know. Yeah. So my advice to people who want to be editors is to is to edit. It's just to you know go out and shoot whatever you can and bring it in. You know the, the software is affordable now. You can you can cut in your bedroom. You don't need to go into a an expensive studio environment to to edit yeah. so it's just to kind of just be free and experiment and you know you know just work on your craft learn the craft you know yeah yeah um is there any lesson that you wish you learned sooner yourself i wish i'd been a little bit more ambitious earlier okay i think just the nature of as i said i alluded to our college yeah which was great now and i don't want to be hard on the college but we all came out thinking we were directors mm. which is clearly nonsense right yeah so and also quite in debt having made these these films i mean i made a short film on 16 mil there's a print of it somewhere right. and i think it was projected five times right but i was paying for it for a very long time after right okay. so what do i regret i regret that i didn't sort of maybe have a little bit more confidence in myself yeah earlier to kind of get on the ladder sooner okay um you know i think there was a for, for me personally. There was a lot of kind of cul-de-sacs in my twenties. Yeah. Um, do I want to do camera? Do I want to direct? Do I want? You know, I, I kind of had a, a feeling for editing early on, and yeah. I, I I just probably should have just kind of decided that sooner. Right. Now that said, I'm perfectly happy with where I'm at now. Yeah. yeah. But I really I was in my I was in my thirties before I really got up and running properly right. as right. an editor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I think Morris Sweeney said something kind of similar that maybe he was expecting you know it to be handed to him a bit more or it took, take, took a while for him to get going well I this, this is it well myself and Morris were in the same class right so you know yeah. I've known Morris since way way back yeah so like we had the same experience and it, it just a little bit of belief to, that you can go and do it you know right um, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well that was a, a really brilliant chat. Um, thanks for coming oh, in. Cheers, Paul. Oh, right. no, enjoyed it. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.